Moi, j'adore dire que nos vies sont végétales. Bienvenue dans Flowers. Welcome to Flowers by Kenzo Parfum. This podcast seeks out committed flower experts working towards a sustainable and fair vision of flowers for a more beautiful world. Je suis Noline Serda. I am Noline Serda. They are taking on a mission growing flowers sustainably and introducing their gentler perspective on flower farming to the public. It's the slow flower movement, locally grown seasonal flowers for a slower ethical consumption. This movement has become Masami Charlotte Lavaux's work ethos. She's an activist flower farmer, founder of Plein Air, the first flower farm in Paris. Masami Charlotte has been the ambassador of Flower by Kenzo since 2022. Inspiring and inspired, every day she works towards a more beautiful world, fundamental values shared by Kenzo Parfum. With this in mind, I've joined her to meet people who act, each in their own way, for a living flower, and who inspire her in her daily work. In this third episode, the big question is how to live with flowers. To answer it, Masami Charlotte spoke remotely with Cynthia Fan, a plant geneticist at the University of Edinburgh and a florist. She also works at Edinburgh's Royal Botanic Garden and co-manages a microflower farm, Ochre Botanical Studios. At the same time, we went for a walk in the Jardin des Plantes in Paris to see what goes on and can be found in a place dedicated to plants. Cynthia. Hi. <laughs> I'm very happy to have you here. And actually, I don't have you because you're in Cape Town right yeah. now. So would you be so kind and introduce yourself and to tell your name, your occupation, and maybe a short bio? Uh, my name's Cynthia. I actually submitted my PhD thesis about a week ago. So I'm kind of newly free and without a career. But I did my PhD in leaf-shaped genetics in begonias at um, Edinburgh University. And I'm originally from Cape Town, and my parents are from Shanghai, China. But I also took a break in between studying, and I worked as a florist for, like, for a couple of years, which is kind of what I still do dotted throughout my PhD. Um, so yeah, I'm a bit of a mix of <laughs> professions. I mean, I only know you through the internet. Yeah. Unfortunately, but I'm very impressed because it seems, I mean, you're, you're a plant researcher and it seems that you're regularly kind of granted permission to forage in the Royal Botanical Garden in Edinburgh. And you're allowed to pick crazy flowers like bat flowers, uh, blue jade vine and Himalayan poppies Orchids, super rare irises, um, I've seen also uh, carnivorous pitcher plants. This must be such a treat for the florist. <laughs> yeah, it really is. <laughs> and you arrange them, that's the crazy thing, like in your flower arrangements. You really seem to celebrate, you know, the, the super nice, elusive botanical treasures as much as the super humble weeds. And so what do you love in those plants? You know, the, this mix of plants and... Are you looking for something in that in that dialogue between the super rare and the super humble? I think what I really love about plants is the fact that there's such an interesting way in which they grow. I think I always admire the way they grow. What we see in a plant is 
the interaction between the environment and their genetic blueprint. So, you know, you can have multiple stems on a single plant and they all end up looking different because, you know, one was trying to reach the sun because there was a taller plant shading it. One has holes in the petals because it was eaten by a bug. And another one is just stripy because its genes have done something weird and it's made it stripy. So I just, I love that they're very unpredictable and you can't tell what you're going to get from, you know, a pack of seeds. So I kind of like the combination of really unusual looking things and also things that are just unexpected. Yeah, so you really, when you use them in an arrangement, it means you really celebrate what they've been through, all the mutation they've been through or all the genetic story behind them. Yeah, and it's, it's almost like a little memory for me of stumbling across you know, finding this weird stripy pansy amongst a bunch of normal ones or a slightly weird looking leaf on a branch. And yeah, it's like a way for me to kind of remember encountering it and the excitement that comes with like noticing it. Yeah, so it's a very Darwinian <laughs> botanical arrangement. Okay, it's really cool. What I really like also about your work is that I'm pretty sure that most florists in the world uh, probably have found their, their calling, their vocation, while just, you know, arranging super simple mini poses for their moms or for their parents on out of roadside flowers or garden flowers. But the thing is, like, the vast majority of, of floristry work that we see online or that we see in shops or that we get pictures of, they usually really exclude like forage flowers or forage foliage and flower florists or flower artists they they pretty much shun like very all these very familiar garden flowers like primulas or pelargoniums like this all these grandmother ish <laughs> or pensies like you were saying like you were talking about but you you really do often i mean you seem to very often use these super classical garden perennials And you mix them very nicely, very beautifully with like wild, I'd say wilder elements. Like you seem to really love clematis seed heads. <laughs> Absolutely fa my favorite. <laughs> yeah. Just for our listeners, seed heads of clematis, when, they, when they're dry, they're like mini clouds of fur. Little like Dr. Seuss characters. <laughs> yeah, really fluffy and really cute. Um, you use very mundane things like pea tendrils or are old branches of medlar or hazel. I mean, I won't describe it all, but you have a very a very specific choice of plants and you even used dog hair in one of your compositions. So you use quite a wild mix of roadside plants and then home garden plants and then the beautiful conservatory scientific botanical plants. You almost, I mean, I've never seen you, almost never seen you using... I'd say mainstream flowers like roses or or hydrangea or tulips or stuff like that. What would you define as a wild flower? And do you think there are still wild flowers actually wild plants around us, or or do you think we've domesticated all the plants um, around us? I think to start, what was really eye opening for me was starting ikebana classes. So ikebana is the kind of Japanese approach to flower arranging. And I think what I really learned from that was the idea of what we think should go into a flower arrangement versus what actually can go into a flower arrangement, which is actually just anything. You know, I think it's so much of my floristry is driven by interesting shapes 
that's what I really love. And that's often, you know, a, a branch with nice little bit of lichen or a twirly cucumber um, or, you know, dog hair that literally was the only thing I had access to while I was isolating with COVID last December. For me, it's not really about what's wild or not wild. It's more just what I find interesting versus not so interesting, because sometimes I will find a hydrangea that's you know, in a color pattern that I've never seen before, or you get an unusually colored ranunculus. So I will still then use those. It's just in that moment, what I find really unexpected and interesting is what I get drawn to. And a lot of the times I don't like using conventionally cut flowers because I feel like they've been manipulated into looking exactly the same. So, you know, you'll buy a pack of roses and they're all perfectly straight and they have the exact same, you know, shape and form and structure um, and they've lost their scent, which is so sad. So I think that's what I find quite important in terms of what I'm drawn to. And I mean, pelargoniums are one of my absolute favorite plants in the world. I think partially because there's so many pelargonium species in Cape Town, I think we have the highest um, number of species in the world. So if you go for a walk along the mountains, you'll always see a different pelargonium in the ground. So there's always that like sentimental attachment to a lot of plants for me as well. Mm-hmm. But it, it's also not like not to say that I don't like a little bit of human interference in the things that I like. Like I do love, uh, you know, one of those very 80s kitsch contorted Ikebana arrangements that you sometimes see in those old books. Or I actually really have a soft spot for supermarket orchids that have been dyed blue because I think it's also very weird and unusual and very alien so yeah, I think it's quite difficult for me to pinpoint what it is that I I like in terms of whether it's a wildflower or it's not, because that, that's also quite a difficult term, like what's wild and what's not wild. And I guess also with you know, native plants or non-native plants, I think those lines are often so blurred because of humans and moving around that it's quite hard to be so rigid about the boundaries between them. And most of the time, I really just focus on being like, wow, that is so exciting. I've not seen that before. Or like, oh, I absolutely love that. It's a lot of like sentimentality and just like interest for me. You seem to be very driven by the moment of seeing a flower or remembering a flower. So it's very, it seems to be very emotional what you do. But that's the point, I guess. I mean, why would we work with flowers if it was not um, to work with emotions? Yeah, there's definitely a very emotional bond to seeing things and coming back to the feeling of coming across a specific plant or flower. I think that like reaction is just so memorable that it's hard to not feel very emotional about seeing them. And especially because, I mean, you grew up in South Africa and then and you're living in Scotland, which is super different. And you maybe traveled also um, in China or went to, to Shanghai a few times. So I guess, I mean, if it's like me, because I've been traveling quite a lot before in my in my former life, the nostalgia of places plays like a huge role in my life. And I guess <laughs> when you're in Edinburgh in the cold, you must <laughs> fondly remember your your time uh, back home. So maybe it's also very attached to that, to being... Definitely. I think um, one of the things that I do all the time when I'm in Edinburgh is I go into the research glasshouses and um, Edinburgh Botanics has a very big pelargonium collection. So I always make time to go and just see the pelargoniums. And there's also some um, paintbrush lilies, the uh, hemanthus, and those are also one of my favorites. They've always been one of my favorites. Um, so every time they flower, 
I have to go and see them flowering. Or even when they're just in their leaf form. I think it's just every time I see them, it's I feel so strongly like, yeah, it's such a fond memory of home. that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> But you're quite lucky because of cultivated ornamental plants that we grow in Europe in gardens are actually natives from South Africa, like a lot of them. Yeah, it's so often forgotten. I mean, I think like roses come from China and yeah, so many species come from South Africa. And I think I, it's also something that I really took for granted, kind of growing up in an environment where you just go for a walk and there's just plants everywhere. You don't really acknowledge how special it is until you kind of go for a walk somewhere where there's not much and there's just bracken everywhere. You're like, oh, like, where are all the different plants to look at? <laughs> Et on est vraiment dans le, la partie du jardin où il y a toutes l'illustration par les plantes de, des classifications. Donc c'est vraiment un, comme un livre de botanique mais en, en physique et en 3D. Ah, regardez C'est mignon, non ils l'ont mise dans un, un châssis froid. Du coup pour la réchauffer un peu. Esperaloe pariflora. C'est une agave. Il doit avoir trop froid, c'est très mignon. Elle a une toute petite millimètre. Et d'ailleurs, je me demande si ça, c'est sûr que c'est un iris géant. Would it be possible for you to um, help us maybe making a little bit of a distinction between so plants that we would see in the wild hiking or native plants and like cultivated plants because we I mean for us it's quite easy to make the difference in our minds like for the two of us or for all people who, who grow flowers and, and plants but most people don't really see the, um, the nuance between like a true species and cultivars and nativars and garden escapes so could you just help us define that a little Um, yeah, I actually don't even know if I feel qualified enough to talk about that so much, just because I think my background is so much more in molecular biology than it is in horticulture. But having worked at the botanics, I've got lots of friends who are plant taxonomists, and I often see them, you know, just having a major headache because one of the species that they're looking at doesn't fit where they think it will in the genus. And I think sometimes what I really like about that is that, you know, we spend so much time trying to learn about plants, we try to study them, we try to understand everything there is to know about them, but there always manages to be one that defies the the rule that we know, that's the exception. Yeah, I mean, I think often I just think more of the exceptions or the, the unusual cases where, like, just because I work with begonias, I know that there's a species of begonia called begonia palmata, um, and it's found in East slash Southeast Asia. But depending on where they're from, their leaf coloring is completely different. But that is a species. I think what's also interesting is that like with because of, you know, human migration, we have so so much like exchange of plants and everything else that I think if you were to kind of limit yourself to only native species, for example, I think you would just be missing out on being able to experience different species. Maybe it was I think it was quite clear, like In the end, what you seem to like in the plant world is that it's kind of no borders, no nation, and it's very fluid, much more fluid than we, we would want things to be. And that's the cool thing about them. I've heard and seen that you, 
actually, you took part or you take part to a collective flower farm that is called Acker Botanical Studio. So do you grow? Do you actively farm there or...? Um, so I think because of my PhD, I've really not been able to grow anywhere near as much as I would have liked. Um, but yeah, especially with the farming side. So I think Oka kind of came about during COVID when, you know, flower shops went open and we were kind of all stuck on figuring out how to carry on, you know, doing floristry and being able to have that as part of our lives. So we're really lucky enough to be given this piece of land in an old walled garden and we started you know choosing things and flower farming is extremely hard work I don't I don't know how you managed to do it um and I also just see how much effort that my friends really put in it really brings so much excitement every time especially after the winter where you come back in spring and you just see how much is sprouting up and every new little shoot is just such a source of excitement <laughs> So we've been used in the past decades to endless supply of everything, pretty much. I mean, endless supply of flowers, endless supply of food, endless supply of products of all kinds. I mean, obviously not in all parts of the world, but Western societies have been used to that. Obviously um, had its toll on the planet, this maximum availability of stuff. So I don't know if you accept the hypothesis of the Anthropocene, the idea that we humans have permanently changed the biosphere through our habits, our technologies. And so if we admit that our activity has led or will lead to uh, the extinction of species, all kinds of species, I mean plant species as well as animal species, so we've emptied niches and we are also creating new niches, like new ecological niches, Uh, so if we accept that hypothesis and that we will probably fill those niches with human-induced organisms that are, you know, it's really new in the world. Like we have hybrids, like flowers that, most flowers that we grow, I mean, you at Ocker and me at Plein Air, will the blurring of the world that you described so well and that you seem to like as well be even more intense, you think, or... For example, you've been studying the variations of leaves of the begonia. Like, do you think it will, this kind of phenomena will like increase even more, or that it's been the rule of the world anyway, and that's just business as usual <laughs> for the planet? Yeah, so I think one of the interesting things that is often studied quite extensively is this impact of environment on plant structure. And I think. One of the things that I didn't quite get to within my PhD was actually really looking at whether we could find any correlations between the niche and leaf form. So whether there was an influencing factor in the environment that was kind of allowed plants to kind of, uh, often adopt a specific leaf shape. I think what's very unfortunate and sad is that, you know, humans are definitely very good at causing a lot of destruction and a lot of damage. You know, plants are really strong they're very resilient like one of the things that I really love about plants is the fact that they're sessile so you know when we're under attack or when we're being burnt from the sun we can run and hide they can't do that they have to stay in the environment that they're in um, and they're so good at adapting you know their internal mechanism to tolerate high salt content in the soil they can like um, release chemicals when they're being under a eaten by a herbivore that makes themselves taste bad so that the herbivore goes away or like they can 
keep themselves metabolically dormant when there's no water around them and wait until the water source comes back. So they're they're really resilient and adaptive. Um, and I think that's such an amazing thing about them. Um, and I think evolutionarily, obviously, I think um, it is expected that species appear and disappear and there's kind of a balance in place. But unfortunately, what's happening at the moment is we are obviously accelerating this the disappearing side of this kind of scale much faster than it should be happening. In that sense, I think, you know, basic biology and that kind of research is so important because it's really important for us to understand these very delicate and intricate connections that exist between these ecosystems and so that we can understand them and find ways to kind of preserve that and conserve that so we're not wiping these things out. On the other side of that, I do also feel like we're very clever and we've, you know, developed such amazing technologies that have improved medicine and one of the things that I have read a lot about is like CRISPR, which is a gene editing technique that is often used in you know plants and stuff. The fact that we've been able to develop these kind of technologies is such an impressive skill. And it means that we have the ability to do really good things with these technologies. I'm a bit curious about daily life at a botanical garden because it seems to be quite magical. I mean, all these greenhouses where you have these crazy plants from all over the world. And also a, a botanical garden is quite a crazy place in itself because it's really a lot of like plants that have been extracted from their natural habitat and that have been bred, I mean, cultivated by humans, and they all live together, although they're from South Africa or South America or Asia. So it's a really funny space. So how is it? Like, do you take care of the plants or do you, what do you do? <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think working at a botanic gardens is an absolute dream. I think I could have ended up in the university building, but my supervisor decided to put me in an office in the botanics. And that was absolutely life-changing. I think, you know, every single break that I take during the day can be either wandering around the gardens or going through the glass houses. You know, when you hear, oh, this is flowering at the moment, and then we all just leave our office and go and see it flowering. So yeah, sometimes I think that's actually probably less productive for my work, but it's it's so good for your well-being. Um, and I think it's also very necessary for me because unfortunately doing a plant PhD often actually involves spending 85% of your time in front of your computer staring at little letters rather than being out in the glass houses. So I don't really get to work with plants as much as I want to. There is definitely that tactile aspect of, you know, working with plants that I really miss um, when I am at my computer most of the time. I still get to be there and I think I'm definitely one of those people that spend way more time in the glass houses than I need to. And I think what's also been really interesting is over the last, I guess, two years in particular, there's been a lot of work going into looking at the, you know, colonial history of botanic gardens. What's also quite interesting and I think what's really important to reflect on is the origins of a lot of these collections. A lot of the species that we have at the botanics were collected during a really problematic time period and collected in really unjust ways where 
I think even the the environment that they were collected from was affected. The people that they were taken from were not compensated for it. They now exist in this botanic gardens where people pay money to come and see them, when in fact they kind of belonged elsewhere. So I think that's quite a important conversation that I'm very happy to see is being had between like Kew and the botanics and, you know, botanic gardens around the world. They're really acknowledging this and taking this into consideration because obviously conservation work is incredibly important. Big botanic gardens like Edinburgh and Kew have the resources to really do impactful conservation. Do you have the feeling that the floristry part of your life will take over the scientific part? Or do you still see yourself like going down the scientific way path a very long time still? So, I mean, this question is very much my current life crisis, I guess, because I, I definitely always consider myself to be quite a like a jack of all trades, but an expert of none. You know, when I'm doing science, I feel like it really lacks that the tactile nature and the creative side of things um, that I really enjoy about working with plants. Um, but then when I'm working entirely in floristry, I also feel like it lacks that academic side of things, um, where the more the, the more inquisitive side of things. And I think sometimes I also really struggle to work predominantly in floristry because so much of the business comes from weddings. I mean, it's kind of one of those like career suicide things to say, but I, I often really don't enjoy doing weddings because so often they're so wasteful and it's just huge amounts of flowers for a single night and then that's it. So I think there's that aspect of the job that is also something I don't particularly like. So it's quite difficult being feeling like I'm kind of stuck between two worlds and I kind of there are aspects of both worlds that I really appreciate and I really enjoy. I mean, I'm hoping that after this PhD, I can settle myself in a career of some kind that allows me to use, you know, both of the things that I like from those two fields. Et c'est quoi C'est un assimilé, c'est un arbre américain de Virginie, visiblement. C'est pas du tout pour les fleurs hein, que ça m'intéresse, c'est pour les fruits, parce que ça fait des fruits qu'on appelle pau pau. Donc c'est un goût de fruit tropical, alors que c'est un arbre qui aime le froid. Je pense que c'est un arbre qui s'adaptera très bien au, au nouveau climat qui va arriver dans ces prochaines décennies. J'ai bon espoir qu'il puisse bien s'adapter. Euh... Une plante de Paris. Circea lutetiana, la circe de Paris. Donc une onagracée, donc c'est la famille des onagres. Donc ça doit faire des fleurs un peu jaunes, j'imagine. Mmh. Je savais pas qu'il y avait une plante vraiment parisienne. Oui, c'est des petites fleurs blanches, euh, super indiscrètes. Donc c'est une, une fleur de Paris. <rire> So you're a scientist and you're a florist, you're between China and South Africa and Scotland. I mean, to me, you have a very special life, <laughs> a very special path. Have you had guides along this very special way or people you, you really look up to? Oh, definitely. I mean, I think I've really just had all of the experiences and all the special elements of my life because of so many people. Like, it's, it really wasn't something that just I kind of ran through finding by myself. Um, I think the start of my, like, relationship with flowers really came from the Ikebana classes that I went to. I think my two teachers who really just taught me to look at plants. Yeah, I just really appreciate the small details that really make plants and flowers interesting is what I learned from that and that 
that was just the most important starting point for this like path that I feel like I'm now on. And then when I finished my master's, I started working at a local florist in Cape Town called Lush. And um, they've literally become like my family. Um, they really just took me on when I actually had very next to no experience. Um, and they're just incredibly creative and um, talented people. So I think when I started Ikebana around the same time, they really indulged me and allowed me to kind of experiment and do different things. And then I think Instagram has actually been such an amazing source of inspiration and encouragement. I know often social media gets quite a bad, bad like reputation for that stuff, but I've always found it to be incredibly inspiring and encouraging because I think there have been so many florists on there that I've managed to meet and follow um, and feel inspired by over the years. Um, and it's also amazing to kind of engage with them just virtually for so long and then when you actually meet, it's like you've kind of always known them for a very long time. And I've had that with, you know, um, Clement, who's the um, Dan and Leon, and Wagner, who I also, you know, I feel like I followed his work and I look up to his work so much. And um, Jane from Canada and Alexa also from Canada. It's really amazing to kind of meet florists that, and feel like you just know them already, even though you don't. And there's so many other florists that, I actually can't wait to meet. And then, like, I think the people that I work with at the botanics, especially the horticulture staff, the ones that really trusted me to go into the glass houses and cut things, I think that's just been... I've been so lucky to be trusted with the responsibility of cutting something from a botanic gardens, And that's really let me kind of tick off the flower bucket list that, you know, you could have. And, you know, it's let me work with Mechanopsis and bat flowers and all of these amazing flowers that I never would have encountered on a daily basis. So yeah, I think it's definitely the kind of thing where it just, it's really all the special people that I've met along the way that have been very trusting and let me do these things. Yeah, so it's, I feel very lucky. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny you speak again about Mykonopsis because I've actually been trying to grow them in Paris and they're difficult. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. They did not survive like this winter because we have pretty uh, deep frost. I'm really sad, like it's really, you know, we're speaking about people you look up to or people that were important in your path and for me many many plants are important pretty as much as people are important for me like so <laughs> so yeah Himalayan poppy is the like vernacular name of Mykonopsis it's a blue poppy very amazing blue right yes absolutely just like an alien <laughs> well thank you very much Cynthia for your time and for your words <laughs> oh, thank you so much for speaking to me. I feel very honored to have you know, had this conversation with you. <laughs> thank you for listening to this episode of Flowers, the Kenzo Perfumes podcast. You can find the series on all your podcast platforms. In the next episode of Flowers, we will be going to Désiré, a Parisian flower shop created by Mathilde Bignon and Audrey Venant, who choose to work with local flowers. I am Noline Serda, and Flowers is a Kenzo Perfumes podcast produced by Louis Creative. Masami, Charlotte, Lavo, and I have co-written this episode. Camille Bichler is in charge of production, along with Kenza Elal Oak. 
Charles de Cilia is on sound production, and Nicolas Vercombe was responsible for the sound recording. The original music was composed by Marine Kemerick.